You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so glad you're here with us today. I have the privilege of being with my friend, Renji Bjoy. He's the founder of Immerse. They are a Techstars startup who has partnered with Meta, ByDance, and Microsoft to build virtual reality offices. They've raised over $12 million to date and actually are going well beyond that probably by the time this show comes out. Renji is also part of 2021's Forbes 30 Under 30 and just had an incredible success track record. So we're going to talk about that along the way. Much more importantly than that, I have had the pleasure to get to know Renji on a personal level. And this guy is the real deal. He just cares about people. He cares about the future of our globe. And what we're going to hear about today is how his technology is bringing people together across the globe in a way that's never been able to happen before. So this is really exciting. Those of you who heard our episode last week, with Shane Pata, where we talked about healthcare developments happening in virtual reality. I told you today we would be talking more about virtual reality being used to change the marketplace and especially change the way that we do work. So I'm so excited. We have so much coming at you today. Renji, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm really excited to do this. Well, Renji, Our listeners love hearing people's stories, so we're definitely going to talk about Immersed and everything you're doing to really change and dominate the virtual reality landscape. Before we get there, though, I want to know how you actually got to this point where you're building one of the most important tech companies of our day. Yeah, so it's funny because when I first started off building technology, I actually was not focused on computer science. Like I was not a coder. You know, like Elon Musk and you know Mark Zuckerberg and some of these other people who've built tech giants, they have a story of having coded since they were eight years old. For me, I started coding when I was 20. So I was pretty late to the game. I was actually pre-med and undergrad. So it's funny that you're in the healthcare space. My parents wanted me to be a doctor. And it's funny because I took five years to finish undergrad. I did a, I guess, an undergraduate degree focused on biology and chemistry. But then I also had a dual major with math and computer science as well, because I did the technology side for me because it was fun. And so it was funny. I had studied for my MCATs. I did well on them. I applied to med schools, got into med schools. And as soon as I had to make a decision on where I wanted to go, I ended up realizing, man, if I were to go to med school, I would literally be going for all the wrong reasons, right? Like money, status to please my parents, rather than doing what I thought was true to myself. And so I ended up taking all my acceptance letters, throwing them in the trash. <laughs> my parents were so upset, man. I did not go to med school. I ended up getting my first job as a coder, right? Making 60K. And my parents, they were just not... They were just like, dude, you could have been making 300K a year and I'm making 60K. What's wrong with you? That's where it started. So I wanted to ask you, what was it like the day that you actually went and told your parents? How did that conversation go down? <sighs> I have to remember it because that was... 10 years ago now. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that... Well, number one, I know for a fact I was pretty nervous. But at the same time, it probably wasn't the biggest surprise to my parents because I've had a track record of just doing all the opposite things of what they've wanted my entire life. And I think that's the way a lot of entrepreneurs are, right? They're people who 
always ask why, right? Your parents tell you to do your chores, why? They tell you to, you know, do well in school, why? And like for me, I was that kid in high school who I had a 2.6 GPA in high school, but I also had a perfect score on the SATs. So I just was a kid who never would want to do homework because no one ever told me that. Give me a good reason as to why I should. And I was like, five minutes of homework? No, I'm only going to play Halo. And so (laughs) I ended up... It was funny. When I was 12 years old, I was actually a pro Halo gamer. (laughs) And so I knew why I wanted to do that, but I didn't know why I wanted to uh, do homework. So, All right, listeners, I have a challenge I have to throw out. You all know I do this occasionally. I would like to see if we can find anyone in the world that had a lower GPA than Renji while scoring a perfect score on the SAT. I don't know <laughs> that, that might be a record. I don't know that we will find it, Renji. So we're gonna throw that challenge out to our oh, listeners. Wow. If you can find that individual, they got a perfect score on their SAT or ACT, I'll take either but they had a lower than 2.6 GPA. I want to actually bring them on the show. So please get in contact with us if you can find that individual because this actually might be a record. So That's so funny. I've never even thought about that as a record. Yeah. It may be. It may be. So you are already breaking records. And actually, listeners, we're going to talk about a lot of records today that Renji and his team have broken, but that's maybe the first one. And obviously for your parents... They didn't have the crystal ball to know by making this decision, you were going to go on to help found one of the most important technology companies of our day. So obviously a little harder for them in that moment, but you're saying you already kind of had that track record of not always doing what they wished anyway. So probably wasn't quite as big a surprise. Yeah. But the thing with them is I think I inherited from them a sense of relentlessness where, you know, though they knew that their kid had a track record of not doing what they wanted, they weren't going to give up on trying to get what they wanted. And so the thing is, like my sisters, even, you know, so I'm the youngest of three, I have two older sisters. And both of them also were not kind of going down the track my parents had wanted for them. And so they're like, this is our last kid. He's also not listening to us. You know, what is going on here? And so it's actually a pretty big issue in my family. And, you know, it was something like, two years where my parents weren't really even talking to me. Just, the relationship was actually pretty freaking bad for the first two years. What was so crazy was I had started really climbing the software corporate ladder in a sense. And I ended up ultimately being a lead software architect for a few different Fortune 500 companies. And I was 23 at the time. So you know, I graduated undergrad at 21. In the next two years, I went from entry to mid to senior to senior architect and ended up creating really strong software architecture for these different companies. And it got to the point where I felt like I hit a ceiling in my career. So I was like, what can I do next? And that that was one thing that was also a common trend throughout my life. Like when I had, you know, been a pro Halo gamer when I was 12, I just wanted to be the best in the world. When I started wrestling in high school, I just wanted to be the best in my weight class. When I graduated, well, before I graduated, when I took my SATs, I wanted to get the best score I could. Not the homework. I was like, whatever about that. Whatever about that. I felt like busy work. I think that's why I just wasn't a fan of homework. But when the tests came, I wanted to compete and be the best at that. I played a lot of basketball growing up for fun, all of that. And then when it came to being a software architect, I wanted to be in the best in the world too. So I was like, what more can I do than just being a software architect like every other software architect that's out there? How do I stand out? And so around that time, I had been watching some videos on YouTube around the DARPA Grand Challenge. It was this grand challenge that DARPA, kind of the defense behind the scenes research arm of the government who's working on some pretty crazy technology. They put on this challenge for all of the top universities to try to get a car to drive by itself without anyone in the vehicle, without any remote access to the vehicle, 
to drive, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles on its own on a dirt road, and like kind of in the middle of the desert. And so, you know, research arms of Princeton, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, all these different companies will all compete, Carnegie Mellon and others. And this was, yeah, this was just crazy because I was learning about technology history. I believe this happened in like 2004 and I was watching these videos in 2014. And so I was 10 years behind. But I was just like, how far have we come? Like how far have we gotten in autonomous cars? And there was still no autonomous car, right? So Stanford has started working on this guy named Sebastian Thrun, who was a professor actually who also worked at Georgia Tech where I went to grad school. He started this program that allowed you to learn the fundamentals of what he had started building through winning the DARPA Grand Challenge and having the first vehicle that would ever finish a DARPA Grand Challenge. And it just blew my mind. I was like, man, if I could create some sort of vehicles that would just drive themselves, that could solve a lot of problems in the world. So I then applied to Georgia Tech. I got into their PhD program focused on computer vision, machine learning, so self-driving cars, autonomous drones, things like that. And the thing is, what I realized was academia wasn't necessarily the place we were going to be shipping products. Some startups spin out of research arms of universities, but it's not super common because it's more than just being an academic to actually bring a product to the world. If anything, it's actually letting go a lot of academia in order to ship it because a lot of academia has a lot of sort of fluff, research, constant prototyping, but never productizing. And so I ended up getting kind of bored at Georgia Tech. And I was like, man, if this thing's going to take eight years, I don't know if I want to be here. So after about two and a half years, I settled for the master's degree and I quit. I ended up leaving Georgia Tech and applying to Y Combinator and Techstars, which are some of these accelerator programs for startups. And my team was, well, just me and one other person, were finalists at Y Combinator and Techstars. Y Combinator is very focused on building products, the world that I came from, whereas Techstars was very focused on you know, building a business, legal, hiring, finance, fundraising, marketing, etc. And those are all the things I didn't know how to do. So obviously, I'm wearing the jacket right now. I decided to go to Techstars because you know, not only was one of the world's best programs, but I would learn a ton through it. And when you were going to Techstars, did you already have a business idea you were working on? Was it still the autonomous cars or had you moved on to something else at that point? Yeah. So I came in with the idea of actually building drones that would automatically film sporting events. But obviously, I'm not working on that now, right? I had actually pivoted in the middle of the Techstars program. So here's another underdog story. Like I ended up getting into the program with that idea, but they actually told me in hindsight, they didn't care about the idea. They cared about the team. So when they had met me and Ultimately, I had like, maybe like three or four people with us during the program. They had realized we were going to go on to build something crazy. They didn't know what it would be. They almost assumed that the drones, auto-filming, sporting events would kind of just fall off. Because it wasn't just filming. It was also automating statistics tracking. So you don't have like you know coaches and whoever else behind the scenes. You know, at high schools, you have coaches who do this, like assistant coaches and stuff. And then at the professional level, you have people who are paid to actually like rewatch film multiple times in slow-mo to manually tally stat sheets. And you know it was hard because it turns out that professional teams, they have the budgets that they need. People are already doing this manually. They're not really a pain point there. High school has a pain point because they just have free staff doing it who have families and jobs they have to worry about. And then they're kind of putting in extra time to do all that hard work. So they had the problem, but they didn't have... You know, it turns out high school teams don't have budgets for robust AI solutions. And so ended up not being a fit. So yeah, ended up pivoting towards what immersed us today because in the middle of the program, I'd realized, oh, man, this pitch is not resonating with people. I'm not able to land the sales that I want for building this product. And we'd already built a prototype for it. It just wasn't enough to get people to actually want to spend money or prioritize the budgets for it. So we ended up kind of... A couple of us were like, hey, should we just quit <laughs> and, and leave the program? And for me, I realized you know, we were one of 10 companies picked out of 10,000 of them who had applied to our program. 
So we were top 0.1%. I didn't want to squander the opportunity. I wanted to be able to build something coming out of that program. So half our team left anyway. So there's just a few of us left. And we ended up pivoting towards what immersed us today because what I'd realized at that point was in order for me to solve a problem to the best of my ability, it needs to be my own problem. Me solving filming and statistics tracking for football teams has nothing to do with me. I'm not a coach. I didn't even play football growing up. I actually started off really loving basketball and wanting to do this for basketball, but drones just weren't at the time safe indoors. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I guess I'll do football. And so I was almost trying to get myself in the mind of a customer, but it's very different if you build a product for yourself. So I was like, all right, let me solve a problem that I have experienced myself. And what I realized was every software development team I'd have ever been on or had led in the past, we all had this issue of more and more people on our team as time had progressed working from home and trying to Skype into conference meetings as opposed to actually physically being there around our whiteboards and our multiple screens and our conference rooms. They were missing on the co-working experience, right? Obviously, we're still mainly coding by ourselves 90% of the time. But a lot of the time, we get roadblocked and need to just poke someone on the shoulder real quick to help us unroadblock something. And, you know, spend five minutes, truck through it, and then get back to our own work. So it's more this co-working sort of experience that our teams were increasingly struggling with because people were working from home more and more. And so I was like, man, if there was some sort of way to get all of us into the same space as if we were in the same physical office, even though we're not, that would be an insane product to build. And at the time, I was thinking, man, it's 2017. How is video conferencing and chat the state of the art of remote collaboration? Fast forward to 2022, that's still the case, right? And so like, it's funny because a lot of these tech giants are finally prioritizing AR, VR technology, but it just hasn't been that way for, for a long, long time. And so I decided to start what is now Emerge, right? We're partnered with Meta, ByteDance, Microsoft, and all the top AR, VR tech giants on virtual reality offices or mixed reality offices, right? So imagine being able to put on a headset. And if you've ever seen the movie Kingsman, there's like a scene where they put on the glasses, you see these holograms sitting in the conference room seats. Likewise, here, our product allows you to put on the headset and you have your coworkers around you. You have your whiteboards, you have your computer screens, you have your coworkers there with you. So it's quite literally as if you were all physically together, even though you're not. And it's been really cool because, I mean, even just the other day, I was on a call with Lenovo and Qualcomm, the processor maker, and they were saying one of the core pillars of their approach to virtual reality is productivity. And it hit me so hard like my heart melted because back when I was building Immersed, I was trying to bang down Meta's door back then, Facebook, trying to bang down their door to take non-gaming applications, specifically us, Enterprise, more seriously. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, VR is for gaming. It's for entertainment. It's for watching movies, playing video games, all of that. It was that way for three and a half years until COVID had hit. And so fast forward to when COVID had hit, that's when Meta had said, hey, you know, we realize people are working from home and you're the only solution that actually works for people. So would you like to partner with us and get this thing shipped to the Oculus store? Obviously, I said yes. And that's where we started seeing some insane traction. And so fast forward to today, seeing that now, honestly, hundreds of thousands of people have started to prioritize this. It's been pretty crazy. We're not on the order of millions at this point, but it will not surprise me if when Apple comes out with their headset next year, if we start getting into the millions of users. So it's been an insane journey because, you know, there are times where I'd mentioned to you previously before, like there are times where we ran out of money. Maybe I can share that story as well. Like back in July 2019, I knew that we had about six months of runway left. And I started fundraising and we had about $3.25 million hard committed to a round. And, you know, it was about November 2019. So it took about six months to get to that point. But the lead investor of that round, who was going to put in $1.25 million of the $3.25 million, a major LP of theirs had pulled out of one of their funds. And 
that was the fund that they were going to invest in Immersed out of. And they realized that because apparently there was some sort of thing that was crashing China's market at the time, you know, namely COVID, we found out in hindsight, that LP who pulled out and that fund that pulled out of our round ended up making all the other VCs pulling out as well. And so fast forward to November 2019, $0 left in the bank and $0 hard committed. I was like, dude, I was literally saying no to these other VCs because you guys said that you were going to fund us. And now all of you guys pulled out. So I went to my team in tears saying, it was maybe like seven or eight of us at the time. I remember telling them in tears, like, you guys can go look for jobs. We ran out of money. And so what was so crazy was all seven of the seven on the team unanimously said, we're not going anywhere. Just keep fundraising. We're going to keep coding. And what's so crazy is it took six more months from there. May 2020, we closed around. They worked six months for free. And that's where I realized I built something special. Like the type of team that we had was not a team that was hired hands that were working nine to five. These were people who really wanted their equity. These are people who really believe in this company. These are people who I knew were essentially my larger founding team. And Renji, that's one of the things I've been so impressed with as I've gotten to know you and your business and your team. You guys have had some incredible hiring hacks. I mean, you have brought in some of the top talent in the entire industry, but you've not always done it a conventional way. Tell us about that. (laughs) I love talking about this because... It's very unconventional, <laughs> the way that we do hiring. It's literally almost like we quite literally almost do the opposite of what every company does. And here's what I mean by that. So number one, we don't hire the first person we're enamored by, right? Like for every one engineer that we hire, we would have like interacted with about 400 engineers, right? So of the 400 that we will screen questions back and forth, all of that via email, 60 of them will kind of matriculate to video call with our actual team. We make a very hard sales pitch telling them about why Immersed to the Future. At that point, the person pretty much lets go of whatever financial compensation they were looking for. And they're just like, I just want to be on that team. Of the 60, we then give 10 of them the opportunity to do a coding challenge with us. And of those 10, we pick our favorite one who not only is a strong coder, but also a strong startup fit, has the culture fit and value fit that we're looking for, and has the aptitude to learn new things. Because face it, we're a startup, frontier technology. You can't tell me you had 20 years of experience in AR, VR, 20 years ago, none of that mattered. And so we need people who know how to learn and adapt to new things. And so for us, we make it very clear that if a person has multiple offers on the table, we always say, go to the other place. Because for us, it's we need to hire people who must be at Immersed. Because in times where we don't have money, if that was what we won you to, or ultimately, if that was what you're looking for, if that's what we won you by, that's essentially what we won you to. And if that's no longer there, then you're gone. And so even if I offer you a 400k salary and Meta comes back with a 450k salary. Obviously, you're going to Meta if that's what you cared about in the first place. But people on our team who have had 300 to 700k salaries elsewhere come to immerse for a 100k salary because they care about their equity more than anything. And so, if you make sure that you win them to the right things, then ultimately you know that they're going to stay because of those things as well. And they're fully aligned for the success of the business. And what I appreciate so much that happens in that instance, Renji, and listeners, I'm sharing some of this for your benefit, but that alignment of the team then allows trust to happen faster because you know somebody's already chosen to be here above a better offer elsewhere just to go build something great together. And so when they're coming to you saying, I think we need to do it this way, and maybe it's a different direction, it's so much easier to trust that because you know they have zero 
desire to do something that's going to hurt this business. That's why they're here. So that trust capital, that speed of trust just happens faster when you have really strong alignment on that equity compensation. And I've been in lots of partnerships and have always been in the mindset to be more open-handed with equity because I've had the philosophy, this came from one of my mentors, don't worry so much about your own percentage of pie, just make the pie really freaking big and then nobody's going to care about their percentage. And so I just like to build really big pies. But thanks for sharing that. And Renji, what are some of the other hiring hacks you guys have used that are outside of the norm? Yeah, especially in the early days of starting this company, we made sure to not list job postings on general job boards. We made sure to specifically list it on only AngelList because it was a very startup-focused job board. We knew that people who knew about AngelList were people who were looking to be part of startups. So number one, there's that. You know, there's other things like Hacker News and you know, maybe TechCrunch, but TechCrunch is a little broader. But if you could essentially put your job postings in places that are relevant to the types of people that you're trying to hire, you can sort through way more noise that way. Sometimes, maybe if you have an internal recruiter on your team, they might complain, oh, we don't get enough top of funnel. And I understand that, but that's why the recruiter exists. It's important for them to go look on LinkedIn, hunt this person down from the corners of the earth. And then on top of that, what's so crazy is we really don't care if they're US-based. If the world's best coder for one particular type of role is based in Turkey, we're going to hire them from Turkey, right? If they're based in Romania, we're going to hire them from Romania, right? We'll figure out ways to get them here to the US if they're open to that or work with them remotely if they have some sort of constraint that prevents them from moving here. And so what we realized is not only are, you know, a lot of sort of jobs are less expensive to hire for overseas, but also some of these countries for the past 20, 30, 40 years have had such a focus on math and computer science, like the hard sciences. And honestly, they're a lot stronger than a lot of American people who are around my age who have graduated from college, right? People who were taught Python and JavaScript at a very high level, but have no idea how the technologies work under the hood and thus just can't build the world's best technology. And also have insanely high salary requirements because they might be coming from a Meta or a Google or something like that, right? So for us, we realize that the right types of fits are people who know the struggle, who don't have the salary requirement because that's not the point in the first place. And number three, want to build something that they can build from the ground up that ultimately won't be part or a piece of like a Google, but instead the next Google, right? So if you wanted to have a job that's cozy at Google or whatever else, we recommend you just go there, right? If you have candidates who bring up Google or Facebook or Microsoft job offers in comparison to yours, and you're building a startup, you already know they're not a startup fit. If they can't imagine themselves doing anything other than building your startup, they probably shouldn't be there. And even if you try to shove it and make it work, this will rear its head in the future as well. It's really, really solid advice. Thanks for sharing. You know, Renji, as you went into capital raising, one of the other things that happened, you broke some world records on crowdfunding. And listeners, just to give you context, crowdfunding is this type of investing. We actually talked about crowdfunding when we talked with Christoph about his company, Jack B, and the way they were revolutionizing the way that a grocery store happens. And what we talked about was he was releasing his company to be invested in on a platform called WeFunder. And the idea was people could invest small amounts of money, I think as low as $500 to buy into this business. Well, Renji also launched his company at one point, put his company on WeFunder. And Renji, you actually broke records on crowdfunding. 
Yeah. If you go to wefunder.com, I'm the guy with the VR headset <laughs> on the front page. It's funny. But yeah, so what's so crazy is when I had gotten to the point where I guess fast forward from that November 2019 story where we ran out of money. And then six months later, we closed about 950K of just kind of like angel money and just kind of scrapped together whatever we could. Well, first off, half of that had to go towards back paying my team, right? So we had like 400K left in the bank now, right? So I essentially had to go find more money because we have a few months of runway left again. And so I had done some research around crowdfunding because a lot of people had texted me when COVID hit saying, dude, what you're building makes so much sense now. Is there a way I can invest? And I, you know, for the first few people, I just kind of dismissed it saying, Oh, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I mean, if you're not accredited, I don't really know how that works. So I just assumed that you can't. But once it hit like 70 or 80 or 90 people who were asking to invest in my company, just random people, like, there's got to be a way to like get all these people together. And I was like, I know there's like Kickstarter for products. I know there's like GoFundMe for like nonprofit stuff. There's got to be something for startups. So I started Googling this, ended up finding WeFunder who essentially allows you to get hundreds, if not thousands of checks from unaccredited people and ultimately creates this special purpose vehicle that ultimately can be one line item on your cap table. It's really something that keeps it very, very clean on the back end so that you can then just in a very streamlined way, take their money in on the front end. And so I had announced in summer 2020 to all these friends and families saying, Hey, you know, for the first time ever, Immerse is open to taking public money just because historically we've mainly been taking money from angels and VCs who we realized now that COVID had hit and we're partnered with Meta or I guess Facebook back then, well, this stuff is only going to become more and more successful if the tech giants are pushing this wave forward. And we're pretty much only going to make rich VCs even richer. We want to make sure that all of those of you who've been loving and supporting us all along the way are also able to partake in the financial upside of our business. And so if you want, you're welcome to throw in as little as you know 500 bucks or whatever it is. And what's so crazy is I had anticipated you know maybe 250K or 300K to come in or something. But what's so crazy is within eight hours, it hit a million and a half. And then by the next morning, it hit 2.2 million bucks. I was like, okay, crap, there's way too much money. We need to close this thing off because we were only valued at 10 million at the time. So I was like, I just want to give away so much of my company. I want to make sure that my team is also taken care of as well. And then what's so crazy is the very next month, we launched finally into the Oculus Store. It very quickly became the top non-gaming app in the Oculus Store. Then fast forward to December of 2020, by God's grace, I was part of Forbes 30 Under 30. And then three months after that, just really from the traction from Forbes 30 Under 30, that brought way more angel investor eyeballs. Way more people kept hitting me up saying, Hey, I just looked into your stuff. Like I realized you did a crowdfunding campaign. Are you ever going to do that again? And so March 2021, right around that time, not only was Facebook partner with us, but Microsoft and HTC and some of these other tech giants said, Hey, we saw what you did on the Oculus Store. We want you to do the same for us. Obviously, I said yes. And then I opened up a second crowdfunding campaign. And that's where it raised 8 million bucks within two weeks. And it was crazy because like, again, I also didn't anticipate that one to explode either. And, and one thing I realized is it wasn't just like magic silver bullets out of nowhere. Like a lot of time and effort did go towards making sure we were prepped for that, making sure that we can then equip the people who had invested in our previous rounds to then go get an army of people that they also believe should be in this as well. So there was a lot of sort of strong fundraising hacks that we had put in place to make sure that we can kind of grease the process a little bit, make it easier for people to kind of get into this process. But what I will say is, we built a core business that had a very strong outlook of the future and also strong business positioning at the time as well. Like at the time, and even fast forward to today, this is still true today. We're the only company on the planet that has people who are working full time in VR, 40 to 50 hours a week, every week. There's not even a second VR app that does that. Not even Meta's first party version of Immerse does that. And so when you look at any of the sort of competitive apps in the Oculus store, 
out of five stars, their rating is about half what ours is, right? Ours is like a 4.3 or 4.4. Some of these others are like two stars out of five. And so if any of these other competitors enter the space, oftentimes a lot of their growth hacking efforts really just become marketing channels for us because people end up realizing that Immersive exists and then they just end up trying and, and keep sticking with us as well. So that being said, like it's been really cool to see how more and more people have been open to this idea of being able to have a telepresent type office. It's something where things like Zoom and you know Slack and whatever else, the areas that those things just don't fulfill or don't supply a solution to your need. Ultimately, a lot of people end up just doing a little bit of Googling and they very quickly find us. It's funny because if you type in the word immersed, it actually appears above the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition. <laughs> it's how stronger SEOs become since COVID had hit. That's when you know you're big time. And listeners, just to paint a picture for those of you that haven't gotten to experience this, I was with Renji. He actually let me see a preview of something they were working on. It was just incredible. Because what I always pictured virtual reality to be is what we experience if we're playing PlayStation or you know what you might see in the movies, things like that. And when I put the headset on, immediately the realization of mixed reality was what hit me so strongly, Renji, that I don't really have a desire for 40 to 50 hours a week to throw a headset on. Or, you know, I think eventually we believe it'll become like glasses, but, you know, I don't have a desire to throw a headset or glasses on and then be in a spaceship or, you know, some kind of like completely cartoon world. But what Renji showed me when I put this headset on I could still see my normal world, but then any freaking where I wanted, I could have five computer screens or I could have a whiteboard. And then my team member who's in Nashville or Los Angeles or wherever they are, they could come to that whiteboard and work on that whiteboard with me or work on those five computer screens with me. That's the moment I realized this is the future of a lot of people's work environment because we know coming out of COVID, I've talked to company after company after company where their workforce has said, we are quitting if we have to go back to the office full time. We are quitting. So remote work is here to stay in some capacity or another, depending on the business. There are going to be a lot of businesses though where remote work is here to stay. And right now, our best option is the video conferencing, which you lose some of those really critical human interaction and creative energy aspects. Nobody's sitting there saying, I want to be on a Zoom together where we can't collaboratively work on a whiteboard. Maybe we're working on a Google Doc at the same time if we're an advanced forward company. I mean, that is just not what's possible with what Immersed is doing. So, listeners, just imagine that world. You can throw on this headset. Someday you'll throw on glasses. You could be anywhere in the world. You could pop up your computer screens right in front of you. Any of your colleagues could come work on a project and collaborate with you. You could move to a whiteboard. And then this is what's crazy. If we want to take a break, you are actually creating digital locations we can go work at. So tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll move to our favorite part of the episode where I get to ask you a couple questions. Yeah, for sure. What's so crazy is we found out that users wanted to do more than just work in VR or even mixed reality. 
they want to start building businesses in this metaverse and employ people in this metaverse and transact goods and services in this metaverse and really just trying to get the world's economy into our metaverse. People were doing this like on our immersed community discord chats. People were just kind of like, we realized, why don't we just get them to do that in our metaverse? And so we sort of made a couple of announcements around partnerships with some of these Web3 companies because they're starting to think about things like putting economic pillars in place in a metaverse world, such as digital ownership, digital currency, virtual real estate, etc. Right? I know all of this sounds weird, but you know, think about 25 years ago when Jeff Bezos would tell people, hey, you're, someday you're going to do all of your shopping online. Obviously, back then, people were like, what are you talking about? But fast forward to today, I don't remember the last time I stepped foot in a store and bought something, right? Like I do all of that on Amazon, right? And so as you fast forward into kind of this next generation of the internet, it'll be a 3D immersive version of that. But think about the next generation of commerce. It'll be something where it's almost like you can almost like walk into a virtual store or go to a virtual concert or instead of taking online classes using video and text on the website you log into, you ultimately can put on a headset and you're in the virtual classroom with your professor and your students. Right, it's something where you can actually have a virtual campus or your company. Essentially, what Immerse does today, you can put on a headset and be in your virtual headquarters. That's another really cool thing I'm looking forward to. Is we're actually going to be opening up services to allow us to 3D reconstruct real world offices for these companies that wants their work from home employees to be in the physical office with them. And the way that works is we perfectly calibrate and overlay the 3D reconstructed version of your office in VR. And those who are physically in the office, whenever they hit full pass through essentially the video feed that shows the real world into VR, they see their hologram coworkers with them as if they were physically there. So I took some videos of it. I can't show it just yet, but it's so freaking mind blowing. It's literally Kingsman. It's so crazy because when in the video, you are in the physical office without a headset. As soon as you put on the headset, you all of a sudden see these these avatars all around the office, whiteboarding together, people collaborating, and you're just like mind blown. Like people are literally here with us. And it's like this almost like this ghost town. I'm laughing so hard because it just blows my freaking mind, the technology that my team is building. It it shows me that, that, dude, the people that God has brought to this company is literally creating the future. And how all of this plugs into sort of this next generation of our economy. We're obviously wanting to make sure that the stuff that we're building is productive for people, right? I know that a lot of people have sort of a fear of whatever this metaverse to come is going to look like because... They have this kind of escapist or dystopian perspective on it, like maybe movies like Ready Player One or Snow Crash or some of these other uh, books and movies. But instead, we believe that technology in general can be added as a net positive thing to society like the iPhone and the ability to connect with your friends and family or a Facebook or a Google that gives you access to information kind of at the click of a button. So our hope is with this metaverse to come, it's something that you are actually incentivized and desiring to be part of. Right. Not something that can just like, you know, shove ads in your face, you know, 80% of your field of view, but instead something that adds value to your life. And as soon as the workday is over, take it off and spend time with your IRL friends and family. Right. And then when the next workday actually happens, put on the headset, fly to virtual New York, have your meetings with your clients, take off the headset and you're back home again. Right. So that's another sort of reason why we're spending so much time and honestly a lot of resources towards building this future economy. It's because it's something that allows families and employees to be able to have work-life integration rather than having to balance so much as if one side was a burden over the other. Right? This is kind of the mismatch that we see in what we believe that God actually has us to do in our work and also has us to do in building our family. So I really believe that Immerse is not something that we're building because we love remote work. It's something that we're building because we actually hate remote work. We're trying to unite our world in such a way that actually allows people to get into the same space regardless of where you're at.
I love that. Renji, this has been incredible. And so listeners, I absolutely encourage you to go check out Immerse. In full disclosure, we did talk about WeFunder. I can't remember for sure or not, but I think my wife may actually be an investor in WeFunder. So I do need to disclose that in case that is accurate. Although I can't remember, I know it's something that we were looking at. So that would be kind of funny if we invested in the platform that helped make Immersed happen. That would make me very happy. But to move us into my favorite part of the episode, I get to ask two questions. The first question is the question that everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question that I want to know, Renji. And in your case, I actually have two questions for you. So my first question for you is right now, when I have my remote colleague in this virtual office with me, they are more of an avatar. At what point will I actually have a more lifelike likeness of my remote colleague in this virtual workplace with me? Yeah. So if you go to YouTube and type in, in the search bar, Facebook codec avatars or Oculus face tracking, you'll start seeing some pretty freaking mind-blowing stuff. So they actually have technology in the Today headset you can go purchase at you know a Walmart or a Best Buy where you can actually try it out in the kiosk. You don't have to commit to the whole $1,500 for this professional headset sort of thing. Unless you try it first, if you love it, you'll see that it actually provides the ability to track your face. And so Facebook or Meta is actually working on software that actually allows you to 3D reconstruct your face. And it's so crazy because when you actually look up these videos on YouTube, it is quite literally indistinguishable from real life. You just cannot tell a difference. I wish I could show it to you right now. But what's so crazy is when Mark Zuckerberg actually featured this at MetaConnect a couple of months ago, he actually like was just talking and you thought it was just him at the camera. But then all of a sudden you see this layer where it removed the actual skin coloring and texture and you just see the 3D face asset moving. You're like, wait, that's not him? And it literally tricks you into thinking that that was actually him. So that is technology. Number one, the technology already exists. Number two, now it's a matter of how they optimize it to get it onto the headset. And so my hope is that that's something that they can actually end up shipping either Q3 or Q4 of next year. So we're only about a year away from being able to have photorealistic avatars as opposed to having to worry about you know cartoon-type avatars. This has been one of the most common points of feedback for people in our application and a lot of other AR, VR apps as well. So Meta is pouring dozens of billions of dollars into this next generation of telepresence. But so is Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all these tech giants. People don't realize that even though they're not as public about it, these are things that they're also working on as well. And we also realize in order to get people to adopt this technology, it has to be something that is not only comfortable, but also very compelling. And it will only really be compelling if I feel like I'm actually building real life relationships with people who are remote. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. My second question, that's part of my questions for you, Renji, and I'm going to lead the witness here, audience. Renji, let's see where I'm going in just a second. But out of everybody you work with, who is your favorite contractor for the business? My favorite person who's working at Immersed is my wife. Yeah. <laughs> she, I mean, obviously, right? Like, It's funny because I feel like we're not just strong partners in business. We're also strong partners in life. And I think that's why it works so well. I think for us, honestly, what's so funny is the way that we operate in the office versus just at home, Like, it's actually very similar. right? The fact that she's very, very good at certain chores. I'm very, very good at other chores. And so we just, we're good complementary fit. And so she's like, okay, Renji's the guy who takes out the trash. I'm the one who washes the dishes. Renji's the one who does all the kind of hard stuff around the house, like fixing the fence and fixing the sprinklers and stuff. And she's the one who will cook. Right. So we have kind of our split of things that he's very gifted at and then things that I'm really gifted at. Same thing at Immersed. 
there's certain things I'm very strong with in regards to kind of the forward facing things of the company, like building the products, landing the customers, getting revenue in the door. She's very strong in cleaning things up behind the scenes, right? Making sure that people get their H1B sponsorships, making sure people get their benefits, making sure people get paid. She makes sure that everything is clean in the back office. And so she's kind of like a pseudo COO type. What's so crazy is she's also a CPA because she used to work at Ernst Young as an auditor. She was on partner trajectory back then when she was doing that, but she realized she didn't want to work 90 hour weeks. And so, cause she didn't have any equity there. And, you know, fast forward today, now I'm working the 90 hour weeks, but it's funny because when she actually had first started at Immerse, she was full time, but she kind of just trucked through all the work and now has a pretty automated system. So she actually doesn't have to do as much work. And so she cut back to half time. She gets to spend the other half of her time helping moms out at the church, helping out at the church, being able to spend time more in the community. And the hope is that, you know, Lord willing, someday we end up having kids, which we're actually shooting to adopt first and then have biological and adopt in between. She actually wants to stay at home and be a mom, which I'm excited for as well. Like she, she's so strong at what she does. Like she was actually like valedictorian at her high school. And like I said, she was partner trajectory at Ernst & Young. Like I'm excited when we have kids because I feel like she's going to turn them into, you know, like little Renji musks, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm just really uh, excited for when we get to have kids too, man. That's exciting. That's exciting. And, you know, I've had a chance to meet Renji's wife. She is certainly the proverbial better half. No question about it. I appreciate that, man. We're both so <laughs> blessed. Neither of us would be where we are without these incredible partners we've had to go through <clears throat> life with in our wives. So awesome to hear. Renji, my last question for the day is, I'm sure somebody out there listening, they are responsible for a remote workforce and they're hearing this saying, oh my gosh, this is absolutely something I want to consider for our business. So let's take a company like that. I'm even thinking of some of my own businesses. If they want to explore what it would be like to use this technology for their company, what is the best way for them to really kind of dip their toes in and figure out if this is going to be workable for their business? Yeah. So the thing that we're most excited about that's like really going to solve a really strong need for people is our hybrid remote work solution, which is where we 3D reconstruct your office and we create a virtual HQ for you, right? So if you think about the time before COVID, everyone worked in the office, you were able to collaborate together, be able to work on your own stuff and kind of have your desk set up. You're able to co-work with each other when you're working on your own stuff and you need to tap your neighbor on the shoulder and then they help you real quick and you get back to your own work. But then when COVID hit, everyone started working from home and collaboration plummeted. Yes, maybe some focus went up, but also people started forgetting how to take care of themselves. They forgot how to co-work together. So they would really struggle to ping their neighbor when they needed help on something. Some people would try to you know, leave video conferencing on and just work silently together in a sense and try to recreate that experience. But it's just not the same. And so fast forward to today, you get to a point where people get Zoom fatigue and they don't want to keep working on Zoom sessions together or having to schedule so many meetings to the point where you can't even get your own work done via Zoom because people feel obligated to fill up that whole 30 minutes or hour or whatever it is. You get to the point where Zoom is just not the solution for hybrid remote teams now that companies want people back in the office and only half of them want to come back. It's one thing if everyone was for sure working from home, but if half the team's in the office and half the team's at home, Zoom is not the solution for that because Zoom really only works for those who are at home. And so for those who are back in the office who want to be able to recreate that experience for those who are at home, and then those who are at home wanting to feel like they're in the office, even though they're not physically there, creating sort of this Kingsman type product that allows you to put on a headset and out of nowhere, you see your holographic coworkers join this space with you and can whiteboard together with you, can literally sit side by side with you, work on their own stuff, 
poke you on the shoulder when they need help and then get back to their own work, kind of what we call co-working, it really gets you to help you sort of get back what we had before COVID. And so what I would say is, you know, number one, reach out to us, right? Our website is immerse.com. My email is Renji at immerse.com. Ryan is another person on my team. His name is Ryan Yep. His email is yep at immerse.com, Y-E-P. Talk to us and we can really kind of talk and assess and see if your company can really benefit from sort of a virtual HQ. The fact that Elon Musk will say to all of his employees at SpaceX, Tesla, and Twitter saying, hey, if you're not back in the office, you have to find another job. Like that's a result of there not being solutions like this yet. And the fact that Immerse is actually going to be the first company on the planet to offer virtual headquarters to companies. It's such a weird thing to verbally try to pitch. When you see the video, you're going to be freaking mind blown that this Kingsman type thing is actually possible. Putting on a headset and you see your holographic coworkers there co-working with you. It's a whole other world. And it's going to really open up the ability for anyone to work from anywhere for real. It's not even something where it's like, oh, we have asynchronous communication like video conferencing or chat, or we have team flow that allows you to have a 2D bird's eye view of your office and you can kind of click over to walk over there and turn on your mic. It's not, it's not the same thing as being in the office, but if we could recreate that experience as one-to-one as possible, minus sharing the meal, I guess. <laughs> so that's why in-person is still important. But if we could recreate that as much as possible, now you start creating a global workforce as if you had everyone on site. This is going to be literally the next generation of the workforce, the next generation of our future. All of our kids are going to be working this way, especially when Apple glasses, Meta glasses, Microsoft glasses, and others come out. Reach out to us. If you want to be a pioneer in this, number one, it's going to blow your mind. Number two, obviously, you're going to get benefits that other people just won't get in the future when we start scaling this up. It'll come down to your team having early advantages that other companies just don't. And so if you have a competitive landscape, just like anyone else in the business world, you probably want to have that edge. So reach out to us. 100%. Renji, thank you so much. This has just been awesome. Listeners, you are hearing about the future of virtual work and it's coming. It is coming. It's actually here for a lot of people already. So embrace it and be ready for it. Renji, thank you again. And listeners, thank you. We cannot do this show without you. If you enjoyed us, please make sure you share this with some friends. Let them hear about the future of virtual work as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.